Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Simon Eagleman is a recent graduate of Osgoode Hall Law School and was called to the Ontario Canada Bar in 2021. He is currently an associate at Garfinkel Biederman in Toronto, Canada, and practices in the areas of corporate and securities law. Simon is also the founder of TradeLawReport.com, a website that uses AI technology to provide real-time updates and analysis in the areas of international trade law and national security law. Simon lives in Toronto with his wife and two sons. Simon, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited. We're excited as well, Simon. And to, to get things rolling, I was hoping I could ask you to explain what the process is for a Canadian lawyer to to start practicing here in the United States. It's uh, relatively straightforward. We finish up law school, take the bar, and hopefully get a get a job. But uh, as I understand that in Canada, you have what what's known as articling. And I have to admit, the first time a Canadian friend of mine mentioned this, I was baffled. You know, I, I, I thought, hmm, <laughs> you know, sounds like uh, writing articles, you know. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, eventually, eventually I came to understand what it's all about. But for the benefit of our, certainly of uh, our American listeners and others out there, what exactly is articling? And just more broadly, how do you go from being a, a law student to being a, a fully minted lawyer in Canada? That's a good question. Thank you, Fred. So basically what we have in Canada is following law school, you write the bar. So let's say law school finishes in, in, you know, in the spring and the first bar sitting is around June. So uh, you write the bar. Um, it's broken up into two components. Um, there's the barrister exam and the solicitor exam. The barrister exam deals with all aspects of you know litigation related matters, uh, civil procedure, criminal procedure, family law, and ethics, you know, uh, you have um, professional conduct and as well, then you have um, the solicitor exam, which deals with business related matters such as corporate law, tax law, estate administration and real estate conveyancing. So you have those two exams. They're taken two weeks apart. And then for your first job, you complete what is known as your articles or articles of clerkship, according to the Law Society of Ontario. So the way it works is that each province in Canada has their own regulatory body and they dictate the licensing process. So in Ontario, we have the Law Society of Ontario, formerly known as the Law Society of Upper Canada. To become licensed in Ontario, you have to finish law school, write the bar exams and pass, and you have to complete 10 months of articling of articles of clerkship. And as an articling student, you work under an articling principle, which is 
meant to be your mentor lawyer, your, you know, the person who introduces you to practice. You have basically most of the responsibilities of a junior associate, but there are certain things you cannot do. You can't, you can't really provide legal advice. You can't like notarize documents without special permission. You can't argue full hearings in court. You can't, you can do certain motions as an articling student, but you can't really do, you can't argue full hearings in court. At the end of the process, at the end of the 10 months, actually this past year was shortened to eight months because of the pandemic and the uncertainty that had taken place right when about when I was graduating. So the sittings for the bar exam got delayed, so they shortened it to eight months. But at the end of your articling period, your articling principal, your mentor lawyer signs off on your uh, articles of clerkship, and then you're a fully licensed lawyer. Then you start your first year as a fully fledged lawyer. And so is it common for you to uh, be hired by the law firm where you did your articling, or is it common to go from your articling law firm to a different law firm? So generally speaking, it's it's very common for articling students to work their second summer of law school, the articling year, and you know their first year of practice in the same firm. That actually was not my trajectory. I articled at a, a smaller firm, mostly did a construction litigation, and then I went on to uh, where I am now, Garfinkel Biederman. It's fairly common for there to be some movement after articling, but a lot of the times it's very common for the students who article at a firm to stick around at least as a junior associate. Interesting. So now at Garfinkel Biederman, your work on corporate and securities matters. How much of your work involves an international component? Now, you and Fred and I have talked in the past about about this as we were talking about the podcast, but what are you doing in the international space? Um, and then are there any specific industries or markets or regions that you follow closely, either because of work or just because of your general interest in the world? So I work mostly on corporate and securities matters in the Garfinkel Biederman. Uh, we mostly deal with small to mid cap companies. You know, we do well, mergers and acquisitions. We do reverse takeover transactions. We facilitate also uh, going public transactions, IPOs. With respect to the international component, actually, most of our clients are based in Canada, but there are a number of our clients, actually a fair amount of our clients are international clients who are either listed in Canada, Canadian stock exchanges, like the Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, Canadian Securities Exchange, and require Canadian counsel, especially with respect to uh, cannabis corporations. Um, back in you know a few years ago, really the place to go public with cannabis companies was in Canada. And a lot of companies who have operations in other countries, such as Europe and the U.S., listed um, their securities in Canada. So we act for a lot of those companies. With respect to you know industries that I follow, by virtue of my work in Garfinkel Biederman, we do work a lot in the cannabis space with respect to cannabis companies. So I do follow that industry quite closely. I'm following the cryptocurrency boom and dip, <laughs> you know, but uh, I am following that quite closely. And by virtue of my interest in international trade and international business law, I do follow uh, the automotive industry. I'm actually a big uh, car guy and I, and I do follow the automotive industry. I'm actually really interested in electric vehicles. I'm, I'm following that subsection of the automotive industry closely. Yeah. It is interesting that you mentioned that cannabis companies, our, our firm, of course, has a big cannabis practice. And I've often worked opposite Canadian Council uh, on matters that deal with U.S. law, where we'll have a publicly listed Canadian company that has assets in the United States. And so then I've been regulatory counsel to help with some of those transactions. So maybe we'll end up working on something uh, in the future. 
Yeah, it's uh, interesting, actually. When you're working opposite U.S. counsel, a lot of times you get, by osmosis, you get to learn a lot about U.S. securities law, which you see, you see the, the differences, you know, you see where, where the details kind of diverge. The overarching scheme is somewhat similar, but there you see where the small details diverge. And it's interesting. You learn a lot just conducting deals internationally. Simon, speaking of, of learning, um, we'd like to talk about your, your trade blog. Uh, obviously, th- th- there's a connection there because it's a, it's a wonderful resource for people who, who want to learn about the, the issues that you cover. So tell us a bit about what those issues are, and perhaps you can also tell us about what inspired you to, to start the blog, obviously, at our firm. We, we have a, a special place in our heart for, for fellow bloggers since we are pretty active in that space. We have both the China Law Blog, which is well known in that field, and we have the Canna Law Blog, which is just as, as well known in data circle. And we also have our general Harris Bricken Blog, which is a sort of catch-all for when we want to write about other things. So anyway, we're certainly part of the blogging community. And in a way, the, the, the work we do at the podcast is an extension or, or a, an advancement of, of that overall process. So with that, I'd love to hear more about your blog. And, and of course, be sure to tell our listeners how they can find it. Uh, for sure. Thank you. Uh, so my website, tradelawreport.com, it's more of a news source than a blog per se. It does have a blog component. I have one blog post up so far and I have a bunch more in the pipeline. I just uh, I want to perfect those, but they'll be up soon. And what what my website, so what it does is it uses um, artificial intelligence to grab the latest headlines and news in international trade law, international business law, international commerce, and it curates it into one feed, actually two separate feeds, because we have one feed for the news headlines on the one hand, and another feed for the Twitter updates where it gathers the latest news from Twitter in real time. I do have a blog component of the website. So with respect to the, the news component of the website, I really feel like in a lot of cases, um, I found that with respect to the areas of international trade law, international business law, and there's a lot of newsletters out there. And I felt like they didn't come out you know, often enough. They're periodical. And even the ones that did come out enough often they were a little bit sparse. What inspired me to really start this was seeing that there was really no central source where a lawyer can come to and find all the information they need on these topics in one source, which is really kept up to date and which really is always refreshing, is always being kept current. So what inspired me to start this website and the blog component attached to it was upon graduating law school, my whole life I've always had an interest for international affairs, for international business, for trade for economics, for really for learning how nations and how people, businesses interact with one another globally through commerce. And I wanted to synthesize my legal education with my interest in global trade and international relations. So I began searching if there was any resource that really was all-encompassing and had information about this. And what I found was there was, you know, there was newsletters that they, they came out, they were a little bit sparse. And they came out, you know, once in a while, and they did have good analysis, but it wasn't current enough. And you'd often read about things a few months after they happened. I had a background in technology before law school. I had worked in a startup firm, technology firm that we worked with AI, and we developed a, a system whereby this this AI system would gather the news from Twitter specifically, but all over the internet in real time. 
We used it for sports updates, which is very successful. We used it for natural disaster updates. I was involved in you know, the quality control aspect. I made sure this machine ran without a hitch. So I became fairly intimate with it. So once I graduated law school, I had the idea to apply what I had been involved with prior to law school and, and apply that to my interest towards international trade law and international business law. And so far, the reception has been great. And I'm really excited about it. And I'm really excited to really expand the blog component. Like I mentioned earlier, I have one blog post up and I have more coming. You know, I generally blog about whatever I find interesting. You know, it could be principles of international trade laws. It could be writing about a development in the law or development of some current events. Really whatever piques my interest at that time. From one blogger to another, getting your first few blog posts out the door is huge, right? I mean, once then once you've done a few, it's, uh, I don't want to say it gets easier, but it gets more familiar, right? And I certainly appreciate you you saying you've got more in the works because Fred and I are constantly talking to each other and saying, hey, this would make a great blog post. We said, yeah, if we had another 20 hours in each day, we would we would be blogging a lot more. Um, but we, we enjoy it, right? I mean, it, it is fun to be able to sit down and, and get your thoughts out there, interact with other people and, and be a part of that ongoing dialogue. I'm a big fan of your blog. I, I do read it. <laughs> I do like it a lot. So let's turn back to your topic of technology. I'm, I'm always interested in people who had a first career before they went to law school. Um, I'm curious what you think about technology and the law, you know, how things are changing, uh, whether you're worried, you know, I kind of come up with this once in a while, how worried should we be that AI is going to replace lawyers? Are we always going to need good lawyers on the back end to be able to make sure that whatever AI produced products are, are out there are being uh, done with the right parameters? I mean, that that's kind of my non-techie take on this, right? What, what's your techie take on the way technology is changing the way we practice law? So I personally think from my experience working in a firm that dealt with AI, I personally think there's always going to be a need for lawyers to check over what AI does in this respect. First of all, the legal field is ripe for innovation. The lawyers were, were pretty traditional. I think, you know, in general, we're pretty traditional. And what COVID has taught us is what we need to adapt. We need to, there needs to be more innovation. But I definitely think there's going to be the need for a conventional lawyer because these systems are by far not perfect. And they're going to need a lot of fine tuning and there's going to be a lot of valuable input lawyers are going to have in creating these systems and, and continuing to develop these systems of AI that might end up doing a lot of the lawyer work. I still think there's going to be a need for lawyers, in my opinion. It's funny, Fred and I work on deals together quite a bit. And I said to him the other day, this guy on the other side kept telling us, reminding us that he was a lawyer. He was acting in a, in a kind of a intermediary capacity in a, in a transaction. He kept reminding us that he was a lawyer. And then I reviewed a contract that he wrote and I was thinking, you know, I guess you're a lawyer. I've, I've seen better contracts out of second year associates and you're farther along in your career than that. You know, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I never got from anyone in my, in my life that I, I developed and I try to share now with younger people, uh, including my kids, is that if you're passionate about something in any industry, there will always be a place for smart, dedicated people. Right? I mean, we, we used to, I grew up, uh, graduated high school in 2000. And that was when the dot-com era was happening. And I naively assumed as an 18-year-old that I already understood what was going on and that uh, the technology field was already flush full of talented people and I would have to go find something else to do, which is why I ended up as a lawyer. I probably would have ended up as a, as a programmer of some kind if, if someone had told me that advice and said, if you're into technology or you're into whatever, uh, you know, become top of your field, work hard. There will always be a place for, for good innovative people in, in whatever space you're involved in. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely going to be a need for lawyers 
at the forefront of the legal innovation fields, I feel that at least in the near future, they're not going to be replaced so quickly. So Simon, not long ago, we had a great interview with uh, Andrew House, and, and we, we thank you for that recommendation. It was, it was because of your recommendation that we got in touch with him. And one of the things that we talked about, and I found it to be, to be fascinating, and hopefully our, our listeners will, will do as well, was Andrew's explanation of how of the differences really between the the US and Canada when it when it comes to our our legal systems when it comes to our political systems it's just in general it, it's funny because with some countries i think there's almost an interest in doing the opposite right to highlight the ways in which things might be more similar than people think i think with Canada if anything i think it's the the more interesting commentary is usually going to be uh, in highlighting how the countries are are different, right? Because I think, uh, especially on this side of the border, people just assume things are very, very similar. So it's, I think there's a lot of value in, in pointing out what, what's not. So on that note, continuing the the theme that, that we started with, with Andrew, perhaps there might be uh, things that you can tell us about Canadian trade law or even Canadian business law more broadly that on the one hand, differ from the way things are here in the United States, or even perhaps that are unique to, to Canada at a, at a global level, perhaps a good starting point might be to explain just how uh, the, the provincial uh, differences, or not provincial differences, but just how much the provincial legislation can can impact business law as, as opposed to, to the way state law interacts with um with it with federal law here in general anything you can tell us about that topic will where we'd be interested yeah thank you so with respect to trade law uh, international trade is something which is in the purview of the federal government under the, the canadian constitution so that's governed by federal law trade law decisions are subject to the canadian international trade tribunal so that's a quasi-judicial body which makes all decisions with respect to customs, export controls, etc. So with respect to the trade law level, that's governed federally and by the federal court system in Canada. But with respect to, to business law, and, and what's interesting is different between Canada and the United States is in the United States, you have securities law is governed by federal legislation, by a federal agency, by the, the Securities Exchange Commission. In Canada, actually... Securities law is governed by the provincial governments, by provincial legislation, and we have separate um, securities commissions for each province. So you have the Ontario Securities Commission, you have the British Columbia Securities Commission, the Alberta Securities Commission, etc., and you have the, the Quebec has their own regulator as well. So you have that, that, that's actually a quirk in Canadian law, which is a little bit different in the U.S. So you, you deal with more than one regulatory body for securities law matters, as opposed to the U.S. Also, all business law really is governed except for tax is all governed at the provincial level. So you have the different corporate laws are different for each province. I think the, the, a lot of the states in the United States are similar in that respect, but there is federal corporate legislation, but a lot of the legislation um, with respect to corporate law is also provincial in Canada. There is actually a clear delineation in the Canadian Constitution, Section 92 of the Canadian Constitution, of what is under the purview of the, of the federal government and what matters are under the purview of the provincial government. And that kind of is the backbone of Canadian federalism. And it's actually education, health, securities, business law. A lot of that is governed by the provincial legislation and uh, taxation, trade, and a lot of other matters are strictly under the purview of the federal government. 
It is interesting how much oversight the Canadian securities regulators have within the provinces. I was I was a little surprised at how uh, I don't want to say heavy handed, but they 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 definitely brought the full weight of their authority. You know, take their their mandate very seriously, and that you know, and and if you're in a, in a transaction that that encompasses more than one province, uh, it is you're you're really dealing at a, at a very uh, deep level with with multiple. Uh, provincial authorities, and and I wasn't expecting that when I did my first uh, my first deal with uh, with Canadian firm. Yeah, it is it is interesting because, for example, if a, if a company is not updating filings, it could have a number of sanctions imposed upon it by a different provincial regulator. So it's interesting you see that if a company is offering the securities in in multiple provinces, yeah, it's subject to a lot of different authorities. And even uh, approval, you know, approval for a license in the cannabis space from one province is not guaranteed to translate into another province. It, it's really a, a a new review. It, it's certainly not guaranteed to, to happen. And I think that's that's common within the U.S. states as well. So companies, can, cannabis companies that are are used to dealing in the United States will will understand that uh, you know that nuance as well of of trying to go from one Canadian province to another. Yeah, when I was working. In a private equity firm during my summers in law school, one of the first things I had been tasked to do was with, to correspond with um, provincial regulators with respect to the ability of private companies to to open cannabis stores. Because under the original plan, when cannabis was federally legalized in Canada, the provinces kind of had to choose how they would deal with it, how they would dole out licenses for the retail and distribution of cannabis. So Ontario had originally opted for a model similar to how they sell alcohol, which was they, they control the sale of cannabis and they will be the ones with the exclusive right to retail it. Other provinces out West, Alberta and British Columbia, they opted for more of a private model where they, they would grant licenses to private companies to distribute and, and sell cannabis. So it was interesting. I really got to see the variance in that respect to how different provinces dealt with cannabis. You know, in your work in living in Canada, I'm always interested in other other countries' perspectives on what's happening in the world. Right? My my news sources are not only U.S., but my perspective is U.S. So I'm curious in your in your work in discussing you know with other attorneys at the firm and dealing with clients, what types of countries are in the crosshairs now in Canada? I mean, I, I got to assume China plays a massive role. Are besides China, are there other countries that that tend to to come to the forefront uh, in Canadian international business relations? So China is definitely, definitely prominent. You know, as you had mentioned, it's definitely comes to the forefront when talking about international business relations. Really being that a large majority of our trade is done with the United States. Any, any development in the United States is of extreme importance in Canada. Really, our economies are linked by the hip. And Canadian businesses and Canadian lawyers are always following developments in the United States because it, it has a real profound impact on what happens over here. And traditionally, Canada has been a big exporter of lumber and other materials to the U.S. and and we do 90% of our trading with the U.S. So really, it's 95% of the focus is on the developments in the U.S. and anything that happens with respect to business in the U.S. has an immediate effect on Canada. It's interesting you mentioned lumber because, of course, lumber prices right now are, at least in the United States, are are through the roof and everyone's complaining about how, how expensive it is, right? And I have a friend, I, my first firm was in Bangor, Maine, and I have a good friend who is a banker in Maine and he wrote a white paper not too long ago. I actually may, may use this, uh, I may 
drop this in for a recommendation now that I'm thinking about it. But it's an article about the the logging industry generally. And the point of his article, or one of the points, is that the price that the loggers are getting paid has not increased. So the price increase has has come after the loggers, right? And so it, it's interesting to get that insight into the logging industry because I know we have a lot of timber that comes in from Canada. Maine certainly has a lot on the East Coast and, uh, you know, others, other states as well. The Pacific Northwest is well known for, for lumber. So it's interesting to really see those dynamics and, and uh, you know, how they play out, right? And, and everyone wants to look back and say, well, who, who can we blame for the way the economy is now, right? And part of it's just a matter of uh, supply and demand. I mean, really, in, in the international space, trading space, it really does come down to those simple uh, factors of supply and demand, of course, with all of the other uh, factors uh, in the mix as well. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I'm definitely uh, seeing how the price of lumber is is gone through the roof. I, that's something people keep talking about, especially people I know in the construction industry. They're they're shocked. It's it's through the roof. Yeah, I noticed. I was at a local bar event uh, last week, and and people were talking about this. Right? I mean, it's it, it's gotten to that point where where you can go to a networking event for lawyers, and and this is one of the hot topics. I just want to go back to something you mentioned, what we would consider perhaps to be domestic developments here in the U.S. can sometimes have or, or often have a, an immediate effect elsewhere. You know, over time, as, I, as I've had the chance to, to live overseas and, and meet people from different countries, one of, one of the things that, that I've noticed, one of the, the examples of this is how important the dollar is for people around the world. I mean, of course, it's important to us as well. But for me, at least, at least until re- relatively recently, when I've started to pay attention for other reasons, um, I didn't really pay that much attention to to exchange rates unless I was traveling. Right? I just, I just thought, well, doesn't really matter, except as a matter of, of academic or professional interest. But but it didn't impact my my life, you know, as I lived in the U.S. And over time, right, I, I've come to see how in places like Brazil and places like Vietnam and places like China, of course, uh, this matters. You know, this is something that that impacts people's decision making, you know, whether they keep their money in their dollar denominated account or they move it over to another account. And again, I had to deal with this to some extent when I was working overseas, but that's that's different, right? I, I was I had chosen to live overseas, but to see how for other folks, this is just something that they have to deal with on a regular basis, which was really, really eye-opening. So needless to say, we we welcome the chance to, to hear perspectives uh, provided by, I guess, like you. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's definitely developments in the US, well, they can be viewed as being domestic, for us Canadians, they're really not domestic, and they're followed basically as closely as domestic events in Canada because of the profound economic and a lot of times social effects they do have in Canada. So, Simon, this is the part of the podcast where we ask for recommendations. I'm going to take the liberty of adding your your website to to those. So, perhaps you you just want to issue one more reminder of of how our listeners can find it. But we'd also love to hear about any other recommendations that you might have for us, whether whether that's something you've read or watched or or listened. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you very much for, for bringing that up. Yeah, my website is tradelawreport.com. That's the website you can type into Google, tradelawreport.com. And you'll find our feed, which is constantly refreshing with the latest news on international trade and international business law and uh, related topics. There are actually two feeds, one with Twitter and one with news. And we're excited for, for where it's going to go. 
so with respect to uh, books and another resources that I found interesting, actually, I have two books that I that I've read recently that I that I really liked. So the first one is uh, international trade law related matter in a book. It's um, it's called World Trade Law by uh, Simon Lester, Brian Mercurio, and Errol Davies. It's a very technical read. It's dense, but it's extremely informative. So that's what I would read if I want to learn about international trade law, world trade law. I would definitely read that book. Actually, another interesting book that I had read recently over the past a few months ago was um, it's called uh, All the Shah's Men by Stephen Kinzer. And it's actually a historical account of the 1953 uh, coup d'etat in Iran. And um, I'm a history buff, so I eat all this stuff up. I love it. But uh, really what struck me from about that book, about, about that whole account, that, I mean, really what happened, the events of 1953 in Iran was how, you know, business decisions international trade decisions don't exist in a vacuum, that there's actually the events of 1953 in Iran lighted the intersection between trade, economics, and diplomacy, because what what had happened was the uh, the Anglo-Iranian oil company and the, and the interests of the British government and the U.S. government in having Iranian oil come at a discount to England really dictated how the events unfolded during that time and the overthrow of the democratically elected government. And those, those decisions, those, those business decisions really had a profound effect on world events going forward on the, on the Middle East, on world history and the economic and business decisions have an outsized impact on world history and they can really determine the fate of the world. So that's what really, that really struck me from that book and, and that whole episode in history. So I would recommend anyone to read that book. It's fascinating. Thank you for that. Jonathan, I know that you thought of a recommendation as we spoke. You've got that ready for, for our audience? I do. I found the link. So this is a Substack article called Why is Lumber So Expensive and When Will Things Get Back to Normal? This is by a friend of mine named Ben Sprague. And uh, it's it's a long-form article. It'll probably take you 15 or 20 minutes to read. And, and, and it's fairly thick because Ben's a smart guy and he uh, interviewed a logging industry expert and consultant. So he's got industry information. He's got a graph showing the, the price of lumber uh, uh, per thousand board feet increasing over 300% from uh from may 2020 to april 2021 and so um it reminds me of a, of a meme i saw on facebook i think where the wife says uh i wanted him to take me somewhere expensive for dinner and they they have a table set up at the lumber aisle in home depot so it it makes me think that all of this matters to us right i mean all of these kind of questions we think about what what's going on why is it why is my house costing me uh, you know an extra hundred thousand uh, dollars when i thought they had quoted me last year that it was going to be less right so these big questions and even smaller you know you're putting a deck on your house or something there are there are questions and it's fun when when people actually dig in and say well there's there's a reason this is this is a commodity uh, you know, commodity prices are affected by global markets. And if you, in case you didn't know, there's a pandemic on. And so this is, this is changing. So uh, a lot of fun, uh, good read. Why is lumber so expensive? Fred, what do you have for us? Before I forget, Jonathan, this might, might be of interest to, to others who, who are listening to us. And speaking of Substack, Matt Tybee put out a call today for interesting articles that he can share on his Substack, And 
you know, he's he's keeping a very open mind when it comes to the topics that he'd like to cover. But it, it seems to me that this article might actually fit the bill. So it might be something you might want to tell your friend, but we'll make it easy for you. We'll, we'll include a link to it in our blogs so that you can see his description of what he's looking for. There might be stuff that, that you've run across that, that fits the bill, or maybe you want to be the one writing that. So that's, a, I guess, a, a first recommendation of sorts. But the formal recommendation, if you will, is an article dated June 6th from The Atlantic, How Academic Freedom Ends by Timothy McLaughlin. And it is um, an article about what's happening in the educational context in, in Hong Kong, uh, how the, the different measures being taken by the local government and by extension, the Chinese authorities in Beijing uh, are, are just really destroying these institutions, at least from the point of view of them being places where people are free to, to share ideas. It was really a harsh read for me. First of all, I actually studied at a university in, in Hong Kong. But beyond that, I when I was living there, uh, I would very often find myself at university campuses because they were convenient uh, jumping off points for, for hikes or because there was some event taking place there or just because it was a nice place to, to, to hang out and enjoy the subsidized dim sum or what have you. It's, it's very sad to read about how the universities are, are changing for the worst. So again, uh, How Academic Freedom Ends by Timothy McLaughlin. It, it seems like this is becoming a, a hot topic. I, I read something else earlier today. I don't have the details handy, but it was a, an article um, on Quillette about the same general topic. So I want to start off with this one. And then if the topic is of interest, you can look for other stuff. On that note, uh, Simon, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for, for having me. Look forward to being in touch. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.